You're listening to episode 78 of Pasta Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocio Carvajal, food anthropologist, Mexican culture and gastronomy educator. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about my podcasts, publications and subscribe to my newsletter, simply go to the notes of this episode on your podcast app. My guest today, Dr. Edward Shawcross, gives a very compelling and rich study of the political, ideological and sociological conditions that led to the unimaginable events that revived, if only for a moment, the long-lost imperial Habsburg dreams in the Americas. Helped by the greed of Mexican conservatives and European opportunists that orchestrated an international conspiracy that had Two unsuspected pawns, beautiful, naive, trusting and arrogant, Maximilian was the younger brother of the Austrian emperor and head of the house of Habsburg, Franz Joseph I. The last emperor of Mexico is so much more than the story of Maximilian and his wife, Charlotte of Belgium. It is a work that captures the zeitgeist of a bygone era that is fundamental in the history of Mexico with deep connections to the global geopolitical dynamics of the 19th century. This book brings two continents together at a moment when we are now critically revising the consequences of imperialism and coloniality. Let me give you some context about the historical moment that this book explores. From the early years of the 1800s, it will become clear that this century was going to be very complicated and full of life-changing events. It all started when Mexico was still a viceroyalty of Spain, but the increasing social effervescence of the criollo elite had joined independentist movements that sent shockwaves throughout Latin America, culminating in the actual war of independence that polarized society between aspiring Republicans and conservative royalists who didn't want to give up their privileges and would rather remain under Spain's control. Despite the lack of unity, Independence was finally achieved on September 27, 1821, and with it, a new free nation under the name of Mexican Empire was born. The victorious military campaign was led by Agustín de Iturbide, a former royalist who wasted no time to call in favors to get himself appointed as Emperor Agustín I, head of the First Mexican Empire. However, his imperial dreams came to an abrupt end when he lost the support of his allies and abdicated in March 1823. He was named public enemy of the state and anyone who gave any support to him or his cause will be declared traitor. Iturbide fled to Italy where he got the support of one of Europe's most influential dynasties, the Bonapartes. Marie-Pauline Bonaparte offered the Iturbide family refuge at one of her properties in Liorna. Pauline was sister of Napoleon Bonaparte and aunt of Louis Napoleon, who would grow on to become Napoleon III, a figure that many years later became instrumental in the rise and fall of the Second Mexican Empire. The Iturbide family moved from Italy to England, from where Agustin came back to Mexico, breaking the terms of his exile, despite claiming that his intention was to warn the Mexican government of an imminent international plot. He was apprehended upon his arrival and almost immediately executed on July 19, 1824. 
For the following 32 years, Mexico went on to have a tumultuous succession of 26 presidents, some of them lasting less than a year in office, which created political volatility, civil unrest and a disastrous economic crisis. But at the end of these three chaotic decades, one of Mexico's most influential political figures of all time rose to power. But the presidency of Benito Juárez had a Herculean task ahead. Rebuild a nation, dismantle the political control of the church and secure the construction of a republican project. But the biggest challenge yet came with the two consecutive French invasions, one in 1862, when luckily the Republican troops defeated the Zouaves in the infamous Battle of Puebla on May 5th, only to return two years later in 1864 with the aim to bring down Juárez's government and prepare the way for the arrival of the Habsburg emperors. Ferdinand Maximilian Joseph Maria von Habsburg and Marie-Charlotte Amélie Augustine Victoire Clementine Leopoldine, or Charlotte I, otherwise known in Mexico as Maximiliano and Carlota, who only ruled from 1864 to 1867. This is one of Mexico's most bizarre and fascinating historical episodes, where nothing went according to plan, and almost every player fell victim to their own ignorance, ambition and poor decision-making. This is a history of the Mexican Habsburg Empire. Now, before we start with the interview, let me tell you a little bit about my guest, Dr. Shawcross. After completing a degree in ancient and modern history at the University of Oxford, Edward went on to live and work at very different places from France to Korea and Colombia. He eventually returned to England and pursued his academic passions with a master's in history followed by a PhD at UCL. And his doctoral dissertation is called French Imperial Projects in Mexico between 1820 and 1867, a work that in time inspired his now acclaimed book, The Last Emperor of Mexico, the dramatic story of the Habsburg Archduke who created a kingdom in the New World. And without any further delay, I hope you enjoy this episode. Edward, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you here uh, on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm absolutely thrilled to talk about one of the most exciting moments and weird historical events in Mexico's history. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Greetings from a, a cold, rainy London. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully uh, it will warm up uh, soon. Now, well, in the introduction of the episode, I give a very quick overview of what was happening in Mexico in the following decades after achieving its independence from Spain in 1821, which is like, you know, what begins all of these uh, repairs, the, the events that followed. So similarly, you know, uh, across Latin America, other colonies or former colonies were immersed in these uh, process of you know independentist movements however we all know that moving forward from centuries of old colonial rule was not an easy task and a significant number of groups from you know the old elites part of the old regime would rather shift things back to the way they were so can you please give us some context about you know what was going on meanwhile in Europe at the time and why we find France instigating Britain and Spain to take full-blown military action against Mexico over a you know, dead that wasn't really that, you know, it was manageable. And, and that, that would eventually led to this idea to, to force a Habsburg Empire in Mexico. But first, like, what was happening in Europe? Right. So um, in Europe, it, uh, not dissimilar to Mexico, actually, there's a huge amount of political instability. And the key date here is 1848. Um, there's a revolution in Paris, as there often is. And the king of France is, uh, is deposed, he abdicates, um, flees to England. Uh, and a republic is pro proclaimed. Now, the election uh, for that republic returns an unexpected candidate, a man called uh, Louis Napoleon, who soon becomes Napoleon III. 
um, really interesting and key figure for us. Um, he's a devious man. So he's elected by a landslide. Uh, and he, he, would have, he would have been re-elected, but the Constitution prohibited him from standing for a second term. Now, if you know your Bonapartist um, history, you'll know there's a simple solution for a man like uh, Louis Napoleon, and that is, of course, the coup d'etat. So he launches that against his own regime um, and then creates what's called the Second French Empire and becomes Napoleon III, which is how he's better known to history. Um, and there's something um, quite interesting in this, because what he's done is he's launched an attack against democracy and he's ended a republic. And of course, he's turned it into a monarchy with himself as an emperor. And so um, as we'll get on to see, this is a model that he tries to replicate um, with disastrous consequences in Mexico. So why does he, why is his attention drawn to Mexico? Well, as you say, the, the pretext is this um, is, is debt. After the, there's a civil war in Mexico, 1858 to 1861, uh, Benito Juarez triumphs, uh, enters Mexico City, but the government is bankrupt. So they suspend payment on foreign debt. And as you say, this debt is not actually that, that, that big. It's not, it's not unmanageable. And most of it's not owed to France. It's actually owed to Britain, uh, in fact, and loans taken out in the 1820s. Um, but that civil war I mentioned, um, the conservatives who lost to the liberals, many of them have fled in exile to Paris and they, pitch an idea to Napoleon III, um, which is rather than just a sort of one-off debt collection mission, what they could do is they could back the conservative faction and impose a monarchy on Mexico. Uh, and so, as I said, Napoleon III, an incredibly devious man, he doesn't really tell his allies. So it's a joint intervention with Britain, France, and Spain, which is normally just to, to recover that debt that's been suspended. Uh, Napoleon III's sort of... Um, as I say, someone who, who loves conspiracy and gambles and back channels of diplomacy. Um, so he's really hoping that it's going to play out very differently to this one-off debt collection mission that when the Allied forces arrive in Mexico, uh, Mexican conservatives and royalists will flock to the French banner. Gosh, right, things escalated very quickly. And what, that, like you said, no, these, these new actions carried on by Benito Juarez's government really hit where it hurts for these uh, very conservative groups. So the reform laws uh, that you briefly mentioned, you know, were viewed, you know, as the, as the last stroke aimed at dismantling the, the remaining of the political control of the Catholic Church uh, and all the allies, of course, and without any chance uh, for the old Spanish aristocracy to recover their privileges. So, yes, of course, we can argue that the level of statecraft in Mexico was still significantly underdeveloped, you know, hence uh, the need to, to secure loans in order to stabilize things, uh, which sets to a very difficult and compromised situation. So, what does Napoleon III says? Like, which promises does he make and which pieces does he have to set in motion on behalf of European powers? Because it's not just his own making. He needs to get all the people involved into this idea of a Mexican empire. Uh, so together with Mexican royalists, they start uh, moving and, and convincing others in Europe to, to give this illusion that, you know, uh, a, a Habsburg empire uh, will succeed. And that's what really we need. Like, how, how on earth does he get people on board of this crazy mission? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. How do you get people on board? Because as you say, it is, I mean, it, it is quite outlandish, to say the least, this, this plan is what we'd call regime change today. Um, of course, the plan is brought to him by the Mexican conservatives. So to some extent, the Mexican conservatives have, have misled Napoleon III in the sense that they have massively exaggerated the support that they have in Mexico. Mm. And, you know, the Mexican Conservative Party is not a monarchist party. It's actually only a, a subset of conservatives who believe that Mexico should um, be transformed back into, into a monarchy and replicating um, what happened at independence. Uh, but Napoleon III, as I say, a um, devious, devious man. So first of all, of course, for a monarchy, you need a monarch. Um, right. And that man is Maximilian, Ferdinand Maximilian. Now, we'll get into him um, a bit more later, I imagine, but in terms of what Napoleon III needs to do is he needs to convince Maximilian um, that this, this is a tremendous idea and he'll be welcomed as a hero. Um, and so he huge amounts of disinformation, um, letters, correspondence, which go backwards and forwards between Maximilian and Napoleon III when this idea is first raised and whether Maximilian would be interested. Um, and essentially, you know, saying that monarchy is incredibly popular, you'll be welcomed as a, as a liberator. Uh, Benito Juarez, he might claim to be a liberal, but he's actually a despot, and it's a radical minority of liberals who are oppressing Catholic Mexico. Um, he also, as we've already discussed, uh, he's misleading Britain and Spain, um, because, of course, the, the, it is a joint intervention initially. Uh, and Spain 
potentially might have been interested in, get, in getting involved, but very quickly distanced itself from the project. And Britain, not at all. And Maximilian's a real Anglophile. And he also knows that for a project like this to succeed in the 19th century, you need Britain on board, right? Because Britain is a global superpower. Um, but Britain has no interest in spending, you know, what would be um, tens of millions of pounds in, in those days, which is a huge amount now, and 20,000 men or whatever it would take to install a Habsburg emperor in Mexico. Um, so Palmerston is actually prime minister and um, more famously as foreign secretary and director of British foreign policy. Um, he is astonished when Napoleon III said, that, you know, this, this is the plan. Um, and this is particularly um, when he finds out that Maximilian, one of his conditions is that Britain supports it. Uh, and so Britain has no interest in backing this plan at all. But Napoleon III convinces Maximilian that actually Britain is backing it. Um, and he, this is just an example of the sort of disinformation that he's constantly feeding um, to Maximilian. Well, thank goodness he didn't have Twitter because <laughs> God knows what he would have done. Uh, but you you made a very good point. Uh, we do need to talk about the Hasbergs and we need to talk about Maximilian. Uh, so we just sort of laid the pieces in our, in our chessboard now. So let's turn our attention to, to these, this royal family. So uh, Maximilian, youngest brother of Franz Joseph, uh, the Kaiser, great Kaiser, who did a great job at holding it all together for the Hasberg Empire, who had no shortage of problems, obviously. And I think, I think, you know, let's see if you agree with me, that very much like Tsar Nicholas I later, you know, the Habsburgs were part of a dying breed. They, they were absolutely unprepared and reluctant to accept and see that they would no longer have a role to play in the new uh, growing Republican horizon in Europe. And, and, and that they had to change or die. And they would, I think, rather choose to die, I think, or die in denial. So, so Maximilian uh, proved to have a lot more, in my opinion, more sensibility and sensitivity towards understanding that these type of compromises that had to be made. And while he may not have had a full understanding of Mexico circumstances, however interested he was in world politics and what have you, he quickly aligned himself with very progressive mm -hmm. ideas from the Enlightenment uh, textbook. Like really, so what do you think uh, uh, that set Maximilian apart from the rest of European uh, aristocracy. Yeah, that's right. So Maximilian is, is very um, unlike his brother, Franz Joseph, who, as you say, becomes emperor of Austria again in 1848. So it's a really important year. Um, Franz Joseph is very autocratic, very rigid, conservative. I mean, reactionary would probably be a better word. Maximilian's much more outgoing, he's much more gregarious. And as you say, he's much more liberal. Um, and actually, the, he sees the way that Franz Joseph cracks down um, after the revolutions of 1848 with brutal repression. And this is something that he's you know, deeply traumatized and upset by, he's, you know, these sort of summary executions, mm. imprisonments, etc. Um, what Maximilian is, is he's much more orientated towards Western Europe, right? So countries like Britain, um, France to some extent, and crucially Belgium, because Maximilian's um, uh, wife is Princess Charlotte, and she's the daughter of the Belgian king. Um, now, Belgium, it's a monarchy, it's created in 1831. And again, so, you know, it seems so odd just to sort of pluck kings out and create monarchies. But it's actually it's something that happens in Europe in the 19th century and, and before a lot. So for someone like Maximilian, or even Napoleon III, creating a monarchy is, is you know, it's just what you do. Um, so, but Maximilian thinks that if monarchy is to survive as an institution, exactly as you say, it must be based on that liberal constitutional model that you have in Britain to some extent in France and definitely in Belgium. So his influences are much more Western than Franz Joseph, who's much more situated in that traditional Habsburg um, autocratic type of rule. So Maximilian certainly has very different views to the to, to, to majority of his family, in fact. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the you know older generation, uh, uh, and even his own generation, I would think, because you know he went on to, to seek change uh you know outside of the own boundaries of europe so you know in a nutshell obviously you know i've touched these in previous episodes <clears throat> the run-up to install this Habsburg empire uh occurs as an aftermath of the first failed invasion to mexico which gave us the famous cinco de mayo battle in my hometown of puebla but then they come back again so this is uh, 1862, they come back again. 1864, this time uh, they succeed because also they get the crucial support of, uh, you know, um, conservative uh, royalists, quote unquote, but conservative uh, troops in Mexico. So, th so that is fundamental to, to that secure that victory. And again, you know, uh, with with Napoleon III's uh, great uh, deception abilities, he convinces like, oh my god, it was so easy peasy. We secured it, and it <laughs> was just three people who didn't agree. 
let's get you, let's get you on your ship and, and, and um, send you to Mexico. So they get here. And they realize that uh, things are, are not, absolutely not the way they have been portrayed. But but this is gradual because there's all all of these uh, sort of uh, curtain of smoke and mirrors uh, trying to prevent them from realizing. But but these are two very intelligent young people. You know they have their flaws. They're arrogant. They're young, and I love that description you you give of them. But they they very quickly start upsetting everyone around them because because they start taking their own decisions, hello, and, and they are doing things in a completely different way. So what uh, do you think, let's imagine that Juarez wouldn't have put up a fight, or, you know, probably he stayed in the US or he died. So it's <laughs> a, a very uh, grim scenario, but without Juarez out of the equation, what do you think would have happened with Charlotte and Maximilian having this very liberal approach? Like, and then, then having all these people who supported them, and they're like, "No, hello, we brought you here for another reason." I think they would have carried on for doing whatever they wanted. Would have they succeeded? Like, what kind of what kind hmm. of uh, scenario uh, they would have had? It's a great question because you know listeners will will, will be thinking, "Well, he's been called by Mexican conservatives, but Maximilian himself is a liberal." So, um, and it's you know it's. There were various promises made back in Europe between Maximilian and the Conservatives, um, and um, Conservatives argued that he broke those promises because, of course, what they want is is Juarez's laws, um, reform laws, to be overturned, particularly the attacks on the Catholic Church. And the key one is the nationalization of church property. The Catholic Church, of course, the biggest landowner in Mexico in the 1850s, and it's it's uh, that that property is not for sale on the open market. It's in perpetuity belongs to the church. Um, that's nationalized, you know, during 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 the 1850s and and sold off. Uh, to conservatives, this is impious. This is a, you know, it's an atheist attack on what they consider to be the one true faith, right? Um, so when Maximilian arrives in Mexico and he's got a lot of liberal ideas, um, and particularly when it comes to church-state relations, and this is you have a, a difference, um, of course, between again Western Europe and Mexico, because in France, in the French Revolution, the nationalization of church property had one of been the great settlements of the revolution, which pretty much everyone in France in the mid-19th century agrees with. And so even Napoleon III, who you know has, is, has come to power as an autocrat and, and could target his own government, he can't support in Mexico the church property being returned um, to the Catholic Church. So there's this enormous disjuncture between what the Mexican conservatives want um, and what Maximilian and Napoleon III are going to give them. It's, it, but Maximilian's liberalism, it is, he is a genuine liberal, a moderate liberal, and he's not, of course, a radical, um, in, you know, and it, um, he wouldn't have gone as far as Benito Juarez, but he does confirm the nationalization of church property, and in fact, many other of the, of the, of the great reforms from the 1850s. Um, and in that question, what, what conservatives um, make of that? Well, they, I mean, they're horrified. Uh, they essentially sort of tass- withdraw their, their support for the empire. So they, they're obviously not going to fight against it. But you see ministers resign. You see um, some of the to- leading generals are sent out of, of Mexico so, so that they can't cause Maximilian any trouble. Um, but Maximilian's decision is also a pragmatic one, because although those conservatives are unhappy, they are not, of course, going to uh, fight against the empire. And when push comes to shove, they probably, well, they, they will back it, Right. He's got to win over the majority in Mexico who are, um, you know, the conservatives have lost the civil war. If they had been able to win that civil war, they wouldn't have needed a monarchy or French help. So Maximilian is, his liberalism is genuine, but it's also pragmatic. Um, the conservatives are deeply upset by it. It's a really interesting question, what would have happened um, without Benito Juarez? Um, there's, there, the French have this idea that if you can sort of chase him out of Mexican territory, he'll somehow resign the presidency. But even some of Juarez's closest um, politicians and advisors suggest that he that he should resign because the combined forces of Mexican imperialistas with the French army seems to be insurmountable odds. Um, but I mean, it's such a you know, heroic resistance on his part and uh, and and the liberals who who do continue to fight with him uh, that he's you know eventually able to to roll back the tide. Um, I think I think I do you know it, it is the figure of Benito Juarez is endlessly fascinating. Of course, great Mexican um, hero. Uh, but he is, you know, extraordinary. Um, I think uh, so. To continue that struggle um, uh, against the French army and against the, you know, the conservative allies that are fighting with with him um, was quite an extraordinary decision, um, and one, of course, that, that worked out very well for him in the long run. Yeah, I mean, also another thing uh, odd uh, in many ways is that 
the the very liberal criollos that were backing up Juarez's and 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 really supported his most radical ideas were deeply fascinated by many French ideals and, and, and the whole Enlightenment. So at some point in history, there was even uh, sort of like considered, you know, under a kind of serious light, the possibility of installing French as the official language in Mexico because they didn't they wanted to cut all ties with with uh, with Spain, but obviously they were criollos, so they were not going to take on an indigenous language as they made. So like, oh, we need to be progressive. We need to be you know, cultured, we need to be European, but which European? French. And now, you know, <laughs> this happens. So it, it's just, it's, it's like it confronts them with, with the worst reality possible. But then again, we, we tend to view history as a very fractured thing and national uh, stories as, as fractured and like, you know, Mexico's history, da, da, da. But this chapter shows us how well connected and how intertwined uh, world politics and geopolitics were even at this moment. Mm-hmm. So there's, in your book, um, a lot of emphasis, which I really, really like, about what was happening here in in the northern part of the continent, uh, in 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 the Americas. So particularly the the role of the U.S. both as an instigator, constantly harassing Mexico, invading Mexico, and at the same time it becomes the great ally. Obviously, it comes with uh, with a with a kind of a quick pro quo. They they look something in return. But why don't you help us uh, like put this in perspective? Because uh, you know. Juarez ends up taking refuge uh, there, you know, during his exile and gets enough support, you know, money and otherwise to come back. So, so what is this, this connection and what, what's the role in, uh, in the fall, eventual fall mm-hmm. uh, of the Habsburg Empire? Yeah, so the United States of America plays, plays a crucial role. Um, and the first, first and foremost, it's the resistance of Benito Juarez, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what Juarez needs to do is he needs to hold out for long enough for the U.S. Civil War to end. Because, of course, you, you know, the, the, we always, um, was here in, in, in Europe, uh, we sort of think of the U.S. Civil War and it sort of blocks out everything else that's going on in, in, in North America. But in Mexico, you have, of course, a civil war going on as well, right? Now, the reason that civil war is crucial is because in the United States of America, that is something called the Monroe Doctrine. Now, the Monroe Doctrine is formulated in 1823. Uh, and the idea is that European governments cannot interfere in the Latin American republics. Right. So European colonies that are already in the Caribbean or some, you know, even on the, on the mainland of South America, that's fine. But something like what Napoleon III is doing, absolutely unacceptable. Because of course, the United States of America is hostile to monarchy as an institution. And it doesn't want to see burgeoning French power growing on the continent or any other European power. But while torn apart by civil war, Abraham Lincoln and his Secretary of State, William Sirwood, they cannot antagonize France by insisting that France withdraws its troops or putting any kind of meaningful pressure on France, because that might result in France recognizing the Confederacy, the the other side in the Civil War, or worse still, becoming militarily involved in the U.S. Civil War. Of course, the U.S. Civil War ends in April 1865. And from that moment, the United States of America is now able to apply significant pressure to France and Napoleon III. The first thing they, they do is they lift an arms embargo. During the Civil War, there was an arms embargo. No weapons could go into Mexico. So the Paristas are, are badly supplied. They're running out of money. Um, they can also now raise loans much more easily in the United States of America uh, after the Civil War has gone. So they're beginning to resupply. They're beginning to get credit. And then the final thing that the United States of America does is essentially issues an ultimatum to Napoleon III. Get out of Mexico or face war with the United States of America. Now, of course, Napoleon III, the whole plan, one of the main reasons that he had gone into Mexico was to try and challenge U.S. power, right? Um, and all he actually managed, manages to do is witness it firsthand. Um, it's an amazing, um, amazing quote from one of his advisors who's sort of talking about the rise of the United States of America and, of course, from the U.S.-Mexican War, again, 1848, with the peace treaty where nearly half the national territory is lost. And he says, one day the United States of America will be so powerful it'll be able to dictate terms to Europe. Shock horror, you know, in the 19th century, uh, if you're a European statesman, you know, that's the that sort of absurd nightmare um, that, that you would have. And so the United States of America needs to be checked. And part of, part, part of the way of doing that is this, this empire um, on, on its southern border. But um, the United States of America emerging from that civil war, it's got um, the largest army it's ever had in its history. It's got hundreds of thousands of trained killers on the border with Mexico um, ready to go. You've got U.S. generals like Ulysses S. Grant, who's determined to, to, to invade. He keeps telling the president, who after Lincoln is uh, um, Andrew Johnson, um, you know, we've got 50,000 men on the border. Let's march them in, kick out the French. 
And Napoleon III, of course, um, does not want to have a war with the United States of America. So the resistance of Juarez buys enough time before diplomatic pressure can be put on to Napoleon III. And then in the um, January 1866, he announces, uh, well, he does that thing, actually, which is from recent um, Western interventions. There's always that moment where a politician stands up and says, mission accomplished. Um, he says Mexico is pacified. That's the euphemism he uses for the brutal counterinsurgency tactics against Baristas. Um, and therefore, we don't, our troops can, can come home. Now, he does. he's not going to be immediate. It's going to be a phased withdrawal. So those troops are going to stay until the end of 1867. But he has, for all intents and purposes, um, abandoned Maximilian. So pretty much everyone is kicking the proverbial beehive. And it has disastrous consequences or and also reveals many things for everyone. And, and there's many lessons that, that that will be historically very important. And I think, you know, Juarez's uh, itinerant republic, as is known in Mexico, you know, all this period when he's fleeing, holding the documents of the nation, like he, is, he embodies the nation. It's, it's a very bizarre episode. But he manages to survive, you know, attempts of, uh, to murder him and, you know, many, many risks. I think, all in all, these, the, the Habsburg Empire ends up uh, doing him a really great service, I think. So uh, here in Mexico, obviously, the way we, we learn and study this history and the historiography of this event also teaches us that uh, all the impacts of the Habsburg Empire. So it reveals... Uh, some extent, the willingness of royalists and conservatives, uh, of power seekers, like they will do anything to benefit themselves at any cost. So that is very clear uh, for everyone. And it also serves a purpose, again, uh, like I said, galvanizing a, a nationalist and Republican sentiment. If there was a weak one, now it's a very strong one, at least in some uh, you know, big groups in, in, in um, the civil population, uh, which helps Juarez, uh, you know, um, restore and support his most radical ideas and to succeed, you know. Uh, so I think it's, it's fundamental, this, this episode, to, to transition into a secular constitutional republic. And maybe, uh, again, you know, dreaming in a parallel universe uh, of madness, in the, in the multiverse, <laughs> the Hasbrook multiverse of madness, he, uh, Juarez and Maximilian would have been best friends because they would have agreed on many, many things. Now, in your book, you make a very good balance showing us both sides of the geopolitical dynamics. You know, um, again, what's happening in America, what's happening in France. Now, in the rest of Europe, how is all this French meddling in, in the Americas perceived? What do people say at the time and the aftermath? Because I, I would like to think that, you know, all those that supported Napoleon III are nowhere to be seen afterwards, no? Mm -hmm. So and initially, um, the, the reaction is shock um, to, that France is going to, it's because it's a massive undertaking, um, you know, sending 30,000 troops, billions of dollars in, in today's money um, is what it's going to cost. But um, you have to remember that most of Europe is, is monarchical and, and is ruled you know, by monarchies. So it's in the sense of sort of spreading um, the idea of monarchy and rolling back republicanism, which, you know, people like Franz Joseph, for example, Maximilian's brother, considered to be a very dangerous and radical experiment. Um, so there is, there is broad support for that, certainly um, at, at state level. And, of course, um, although Britain doesn't get involved, it does play a slightly ambiguous role. Uh, and, again, Palmerston... Um, comes into this because, as we said, Maximilian made one of his conditions that Britain should guarantee the empire. Uh, Palmerston refuses to do that, but his foreign secretary, Lord Russell, wants to write to Maximilian and say, look, he's making a condition of going to Mexico. We're never going to support it in that way. We should tell him. And Palmerston says, no, don't let, leave, it, leave it ambiguous because Palmerston is incredibly anti-American himself. And he's fearful of the rise of the United States of America. And remember that in the, in the 1860s, no one thinks that US expansion is over. Everyone thinks that the northern states of Mexico will be annexed to the, to the United States of America um, and that that process will continue potentially to the point whereby there is no independent Mexico anymore. Um, and so Palmerston and, and Britain, there is, it's, yeah, it's, it's ambivalent. Um, they, they say, well, if the, if the French can do this and if they can create a stable monarchy in Mexico and we don't have to do anything, um, then they're happy with that. The other two players, are, of course, um, Franz Joseph and the Austrian Empire. Now, initially, uh, Franz Joseph is quite, is quite keen on the scheme because Maximilian has said he's outgoing, he's liberal, he's popular. Uh, so getting his, his, his younger, uh, more popular brother out of 
Austria uh, and into his own kingdom, um, where he's no longer a sort of rival focus of power, is quite an attractive proposition to him. But he quickly realizes, and his foreign ministry as well, they realize that Napoleon III is lying to them, that the project is going to be incredibly difficult, um, and that it's, you know, it's it's not going to be um, a good idea, to put it mildly. Um, so again, his 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 position is slightly ambivalent. Um, what he does allow is for recruitment of foreign volunteers. And actually, there's about six or seven thousand um, people from the Habsburg monarchy. So remember, this is not just modern day Austria. This is place. This is places like Poland, Croatia, Bosnia, whatever, it, whatever it might be. Um, he allows the, the, them to be recruited, um, as does the King of Belgium, um, Charlotte's father, um, Leopold. So there is a, quite a lot of support initially for Maximilian's empire. Um, two, enor- two enormous loans are raised on the money market- markets of London and Paris, which you know ordinary people subscribe to. So there's also financial backing. Um, but there is also a lot of opposition as well. There, you mentioned those links between um, me- Mexican liberals and uh, European ones. Um, mm-hmm. And there, you know, there is, it's, it's, in France itself, the, the policy is hugely unpopular with the people. Because no one understands what, what the point is. Um, you know, it's the one earth of French troops doing in Mexico. You've got Prussia, which is a rising militaristic power uh, on the border with France. But having your army in Mexico um, is not necessarily ideal. And of course, you've got, um, you've got Republicans in France who see this as a fantastic cause that they can get behind and use to criticize the government of Napoleon III. So at state level, there is quite a lot of support for Maximilian. Um, but actually, in, in more, more, more in terms of um, popular politics, it's, it's much more difficult to gauge, and there's plenty of opposition. So basically, uh, it had uh, many reactions from from people from across the Habsburg Empire. Obviously, uh, a very complex, uh, a very complex territory with many nationalities, with many regional identities. However, some people actually get engaged, and they're like, "Okay, you know, let, let's go for it." Uh, and let's let's show some support. They they come, and obviously everything uh, crumbles and breaks down in a very nasty way for everyone. So the downfall of Maximilian and Charlotte, like you just have said, you know, uh, painted this, this very thorough picture. It was the result of a lot of political intrigue, betrayal, greed, arrogance, and naivety. <laughs> but uh, uh, dramatic as Maximilian's e- uh, execution was, his very sad end, you know, hence of. Uh, but we, we don't need to dwell on that, but, you know, things get nasty, uh, even after his execution. All in all, I think it was a much more dignified end than the one that Charlotte had to endure for many decades to come. And, you know, something we, we haven't touched on uh, is, the, is the centuries-old Hasburg connection between Mexico and uh, the and, and colonial uh, the, the colonial period with another Hasburg, which actually is what links this 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 Hasburg lineage, uh, but sort of uh, making a, a, a parallel story with the quote unquote madness of Charlotte and, and how she she sort of uh, uh, realizes that that she's been a pawn in in all of these and, and she is is left high and dry. Um, so she, she's very emotional. She breaks down. But very much like another woman that had married a Hasburg that ends up crazy, quote unquote, uh, Joan of Castile or Juana la Loca, right? Uh, who, who marries um, uh, uh, Philip, the handsome Felipe el Hermoso, and, and they go on to have a uh, uh, Charles the Fifth, which becomes this great emperor, but you know, like her, she ends up being branded as mad and crazy and stripped from her titles uh, because everyone around her wants to benefit from whatever's left, right? So of course, there was emotional and psychological stress that plagued uh, both her lives and Charlotte's life, obviously, uh, and uh, she ends up being removed, <clears throat> and and she was ostracized, and no one protected her in the end. So uh, first. What do you think that Charles' story and bitter end tells us about the role of women in the decline of the great empires? Mm, well, yeah, it's such a um, tragic and dramatic story, um, Charlotte's. Um, she, yeah, so in, in that sense, uh, in terms of the role of women, um, she is, like Maximilian, she's very smart, very intelligent and fiercely ambitious. But of course, a, 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 even an aristocratic woman in the 19th century to play a meaningful political role, that has to be through the husband. And actually, you know, it's in part what attracts her to Maximilian because the Habsburgs are the most illustrious dynasty 
in um, in in all of Europe, right? So marrying to, marrying into Habsburg should be a sort of path in, into power uh, and importance, which is what she wants. Uh, in Mexico, in fact, um, she because Maximilian is, is is often dubbed by his enemies when he's in Mexico as a royal tourist. He loves nothing more than going on tour, visiting all of the you know the towns, villages, cities. He's really into botany and natural science, and he collects you know um, rare specimens of, of uh, insects and butterflies and things like that. So when he's off doing that, Carlotta, um, Charlotte, she's ruling in Mexico as regent. And she's got a completely different approach to Maximilian. Maximilian prevaricates, procrastinates, never makes a decision if he doesn't have to. And so when he has meetings with his ministers, they sort of talk for hours and nothing happens. And then it, it, uh, Maximilian's ministers are shocked when Carlotta's chairing the meetings because she comes in, she's prepared, and she's already made the decision. And she tells them what to do. Uh, so she's a, you know, she's a formidable woman. And actually, the French, um, the French generals much prefer her, and partially because her mother's French and um, and therefore you know, there's that kind of affinity. Um, but also because she's just she's much more pragmatic and she just gets things done. Uh, and she understands the situation much better than Maximilian, who's a bit of a naive dreamer. He thinks that you know he'll be able to win everyone over with his personal charm and charisma. And Carlotta's always, you know, writing back to France saying, we need more troops. <laughs> you know, uh, we can we can we can um, we can be you know liberal and and, and once we've we've been victorious. Um, so she's hard-headed, um, pragmatic, and very intelligent. You know, she speaks in numerous languages, um, but she has this tragic end, as you say, which is well, it's um, it's not it's not an end because she she lives on for a long time. But mm. she goes back to France um, after Napoleon III has announced he's withdrawing his troops because she thinks that she can persuade um, Napoleon III to change his mind. And by the way, he's she's already persuaded Maximilian to stay in Mexico because when Maximilian hears that Napoleon III is withdrawing his troops. She, um, Maximilian decides to abdicate, which Carlotta is furious by. It's absolutely terrifying. You can read the memorandum that she writes to Maximilian um, saying that you can't abdicate, it's cowardice, it's dishonorable, um, and that essentially you're gonna, you, you will die here in Mexico um, or, you know, or triumph. Uh, and I think, you know, you get to a stage in your relationship when your partner writes you a sort of, you know, 10-page memorandum about your behavior. Um, I think even I would have, uh, would have backed down in the face of that. Um, but she goes back to France, tries to persuade Napoleon III to change his mind. She's brought with her letters in which Napoleon III has said, my support will never fail you. She brings out the letters and shows them to Napoleon III. And um, the French emperor starts crying. Doesn't change his mind, though. Um, <laughs> um, uh, he's absolutely um, done with, with, the, with the Mexican intervention. He's getting his troops out. So Carlos has got one more trick up her sleeve, which is to go to the Vatican in Rome and speak to the Pope. Because, as we've said earlier, Maximilian has confirmed most of Juarez's reforms and therefore alienated his core constituency of Catholic conservatives. If he can get an agreement with the Pope that sanctifies his church-state relations, then, of course, those Catholics have to get behind it, right? Because the Pope is, the Pope is ordained it. So that's the plan. Um, but she, the pressure of the mission, which is essentially the survival of, of, of the empire and also potentially, you know, her husband, who she has convinced to stay, right? So she's got a lot of pressure riding on this. Uh, her, she, her mind begins to unravel and she displays signs of paranoia, delusion. She thinks that Napoleon III uh, is trying to poison her. And this all comes to an incredible uh, denouement in the Vatican where she breaks in unannounced, demands to see the Pope, um, and breaks down in tears, sobbing in the corridors of the Vatican, claiming that her entire entourage from Mexican ministers to, to servants is in the pay of the French emperor who wants her murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's lost She's lost all reason. She's absolutely convinced that people are trying to poison her. She Eventually, it, it, she stays the night in the Vatican, um, which is not the done thing, but you know, they just can't get her out because she's so terrified that um, if she leaves the, the safety of the Vatican, she'll be killed. And when she gets back to her hotel room, she sequesters herself there, refuses to eat anything except for nuts and oranges. Which, um, I guess, you know, you peel them yourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So you can you can be fairly certain it's not poison. And then eventually she, there's one maid that she does trust um, and she gets live chickens to live in the room with her. And then the, the food has to, you know, the chickens have to be killed and plucked and prepared in front of her so she can see the entire process. So she is completely delusional, really sad. Um she never fully recovers, so she doesn't go back to Mexico. Um, and of course, you know what compounds the problem is in the 19th century with with mental problems like this. The um, the, the normal practice was to isolate the patient, which of course um, only exacerbates it. And so she never really makes a full recovery. 
Um, she goes to Miramar, which is the amazing castle that Maximilian constructed uh, on the Adriatic. Uh, and then, yeah, her Habsburg family um, are pretty disinterested in her, in all honesty, and, it's in, and she ends up with her Belgian family. And she lives until 1927, which is extraordinary. Um, there's a fantastic story in, in, the, um, in the First World War. In 1916, the German army invades Belgium. Um, and um, one of the German officers sees the, the Habsburg colours flying from a Belgian castle. So he goes and knocks on the door and says, you know, demands who's got the right to fly the, the, the flag of the Habsburgs who are fighting with the Germans in World War I. And the, the servant opens the door and just very coolly um, tells the German officer, it's the Empress of Mexico. <laughs> um, which is extraordinary in 1916, you know, right? it's, um, it's almost, it seems so recent. Um, and a German soldier actually then puts a sign up saying that this is the Empress of Mexico, don't disturb her <laughs> because she's, um, she doesn't want to be disturbed. And she has moments of lucidity, so um, she's not completely delusional for the rest of her life, but, you know, she's, she never returns to, you know, to, to how she was before um, the breakdown in the Vatican. So it's a very, it's a very long and sad um, and lonely life that she leads, really. Yeah, yeah, totally undeserved and 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 probably deserves a lot more attention uh, in you know the history of women in politics. And I don't know if you are aware of this, but uh, here in Mexico, there is a lot of work uh, done on uh, um, in the history of music. And in the nineties, there were several uh, CDs. Uh, released uh, some books of the French intervention, the first and the second. So in these uh, folk song books, uh, you know, uh, musical historians have collected these popular songs that are very simple, that the presumably soldiers and people from Puebla, uh, where, where they the troops stayed the longest, um, made all these songs, not only for the time during the conflict, but even in the aftermath. And what I find always very moving is that even though we Mexicans have every reason uh, to be offended and hate, you know, the gods of Paul Maximilian and Charlotte mm -hmm. or Carlota, actually uh, for many, many years, she was still known as Mama Carlota. So there is a lovely song, uh, Adios Mama Carlota, Adios Mi Dulce Amor, uh, like goodbye, uh, Mother Charlotte, goodbye, my sweet love, and you know, like when, when she finally leaves, uh, never to return. So it's, it's it's very endearing because I think even in this tumultuous time, um, we we haven't talked really about you know what the average Mexican thought of all, about all these, right? Because we were all caught up in this political madness, and it turns out that even in in the the broken spirits and, and all these chaos, we found in ourselves some compassion for these mm -hmm. for both i think well for maximilian probably more fascination but for carlota definitely uh, some compassion and i think uh, you know it's, it's something probably she would have liked to have heard you know <laughs> it would have given she her would have done. some comfort that, that oh mama carlota we still we still love you um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the cultural footprint obviously of these very very shortly you know under four years of, of uh, Habsburg Empire, you know, was much larger, obviously, than, than what it lasted. And it was very transcendent in, in many, many, many different ways because the Mexican white upper classes, you know, absolutely, you know, fed their European obsession of adopting new forms of sociability and entertainment and, you know, the, the, uh, having waltzes and, and dining mm. and all these things, you know, that emulated these great uh, European societies. So even after Juarez's return, uh, all these things made a comeback and obviously even more strong, uh, in a stronger fashion with Porfirio Diaz, you know, in, in, at the turn of the century. So it all comes back with more force than ever and it becomes this kind of nostalgia and Mexico is still this kind of nostalgia for, for you know the four years that never were the empire that never was and 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 obviously there was another impact you know on the other side of the Atlantic uh, but it wasn't the same you know for us it's endearing it's messy it's you know it's a mirage but but in Europe just like you just have said you know it's just source of shame and embarrassment and let's never talk about these please uh, <laughs> so uh, but but i think on the other hand there were other uh, sort of cultural impacts like like creating or or reviving this fascination for mexico you know it was new spain attracted a lot of fascination for travelers and, and adventurers uh probably the last great adventure that ever came adventure yeah um 
naturalist scientist uh, was uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt, uh, obviously. But but then afterwards, you know, after all of these, many other uh, travelers kept coming, you know, from Adela Breton, Karl uh, Leupold, uh, Mosley, uh, you know, Catherwood before, again, like Humboldt. So uh, I think it, in my opinion, you, you will tell us your version from Europe, it sort of uh, fed this fascination from Mexico, like, oh my God, it's still unknown. It's still unpredictable. There's still so many things to be discovered. And obviously, uh, your book stems from a larger uh, uh, previous research, which is your PhD uh, and, and, you know, the whole impact of all of these events that occurred in Latin America, in, in Europe, and how, how it came back again. So why don't you give us some some uh, views about the, these uh, renewed fascination, what attracted people, you know, what brought them here again? Mm. Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right that this episode, is, which is, seems, you know, so bizarre um, in many ways, and so almost out, out of time, even in the 1860s, implanting a European aristocrat onto a throne and creating a monarchy in Mexico, it does feed that fascination and um, European view of Mexico as somewhere, uh, yeah, quite extraordinary and unknown and exotic, and it's the kind of place where you would get an, a Habsburg archduke turn up for a few years and then get executed. So it confirms a lot of those, um, those a lot of, I guess, what stereotypes about Mexico um, for, for Europeans. It does lead to, you know, to a lot of exchange, of course, as well, and there's um, a lot of um, uh, research and, and, and trade during that, that French period. Um, in terms of in terms of its its impact um, in Mexico, I think it's what what you were saying earlier is is well, of course it's the, the national myth, the unifying national myth, myth of Benito Juarez, but also really importantly the the complete defeat of the Conservative Party and, and that conservative movement as a viable political project for decades, um, really. Um, but then, of course, you know the the, the, the tragedies. I'm, I'm not an expert on on Diaz, so I'm not going to wade into the debate too much, but. Of course, you don't. You, you what you don't get in Mexico um, is the is the is the you know the sort of um, democratic and free republic that, of course, a lot of people mm -hmm. thought that they were fighting for. And of course, Diaz is one of one of the generals fighting against the French. Um, and one of the great ironies is there's a letter in the, the Napoleon III writes to Maximilian because he's always trying to give advice uh, because he doesn't think Maximilian's ruling very well. He thinks he's being too liberal. Um, and he says to to Maximilian, you know, it's it's. Um, it's not through parliamentary um, liberty that Mexico will be governed. You, what you need to do is create a liberal dictatorship, right? So the idea that you you, mm -hmm. you have the secular reforms of Juarez, mm -hmm. um, but you don't worry too much about the democracy. Well, that formula sounds quite familiar, I think, to uh, anyone who knows, you know, what happens with Diaz afterwards. So um, that's, I guess, it's another sad, um, sad irony, I, I, I guess, that comes out of it um, is mm -hmm. that, yeah, the project, the hopeful project of, um, of, of of Benito Juarez and a lot of Far Easterns is not realized in the, in the 1870s, quite the opposite. The other impact um, in, um, that we should mention is that it, from, a, from a geopolitical point of view, it absolutely confirms the dominance of the United States of America. Um, it was a deliberate challenge to US power and it failed disastrously. Mm -hmm. And I think it deters any an European government from any kind of meaningful intervention in Latin America until the Cold War, um, when of course, you know, you have Cuban Missile Crisis, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, the defeat of conservatism in Mexico, the unifying myth of, of, of Benito Juarez, um, and, and the confirmation of, mm -hmm, of US mm -hmm. power and hegemony. And because uh, some of my listeners will kill me if I don't ask this, because several have sent me this question. So we hear endlessly about uh, European monarchs or, um, in this case, aristocrats or princes being sent here to rule. Let's imagine... Uh, uh, an opposite scenario <laughs> and this is a crazy question what if what if just entertain me <laughs> Montezuma the last Aztec emperor who was raised to be a statesman you know a, a prince educated in politics uh, what would he had made <laughs> of uh, a rule in Austria like you, you know let's go <laughs> and <laughs> he had you know, arguably, probably he had more authority and believed more in himself, and so himself probably more as a statesman than 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 Maximilian, probably 
much more similar to Carlota, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking. No? Yeah, well, fantastic. I love the idea of, uh, of uh, an Aztec on the, the Austrian throne. Yeah, let's, we should, we should, should, the movement should be reversed. Um, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, which I'd never know, but, but I love that, that idea. And uh, Edward, I really enjoyed your book. Like, I just flew through the pages. Your process is beautiful, it's engaging, it's clever, and also, very importantly, it's very compassionate. And I think it's, it's something we need in, in the way we are revisiting history today. You know, we, we are very... Uh, uh, indignant about many things, but also we are measuring by our own standards. And I think your your very compassionate view on, on almost everyone, but especially on, on uh, Carlota and Maximiliano, are, are something that brings a lot of nuance. And I appreciate it. And you know, it's a great window for people who are not familiar with, with the history of Mexico in the 19th century, of course, because I think in Europe there's just this broad idea of indigenous pre-Columbian cultures, and then nothing vague concepts about the colonial life. Nothing present day spring break. And like, come on, a lot of things happen in between. So I really think you give us a very enticing invitation to explore, especially for non-Mexicans, to explore this fundamental century for Mexico, the 19th century, with a very sexy uh, story of love, ambition, war, and death. So it's a perfect political thriller, uh, of course, and I see a movie <laughs> even <laughs> in the bacon. So, uh, you know, wh- why don't you give us some things, some idea of wh- what brought you to Maximilian? What 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 things do you discover during this process that, that made you, I don't know, sort of like fall in love with him? And then things that, that exasperated, you know, the bejesus out of you when you were uh, getting intimate with with his story. Hmm. So what it grew it grew out of my doc- doctoral research, which was on um, sort of French imperialism in in and um, connections with Mexico and Mexican intellectual thought that sort of underpinned the Conservative Party. So of course the Second Empire was a, was a subset of that, the Mexican Second Empire. Um, and but I was always from a very young age. So at school I did nineteenth century French history, and so you know this was when I was sort of seventeen, eighteen. And um, there was just this tiny, tiny bit, you know, in the textbook, which says, oh, France invaded Mexico. And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, um, because as you say about how how it's how it's how it's kind of viewed outside of Mexico, the story is just not known in Europe at all. It's absolutely I mean, you know, some people might have heard of Cinco de Mayo. They probably don't know what what it's about. They should listen to your excellent episode uh, to find out. Um, And they might know it through a very famous painting by the French artist Edouard Manet. The execution of Maximilian, but again, they know the painting. They have no idea who Maximilian is, and um, they might not even um, clock that it's in Mexico. So it's just, it's just such an extraordinary tale. It's just endlessly fascinating. At times, barely believable. And I think just what attracted to me was, as a historian, trying to explain that, make sense of it, because it is an incredible drama, and it does seem, you know, bizarre. But actually, I think when you get down into the into the documents, the archives, and the motivations of the individual, sort of each decision on its own merits does make sense. But it's just when you add it all together with you know people breaking down in the Vatican, Maximilian's execution, the you know the heroism of Richard Harris, it becomes a, as you say a sort of a Hollywood movie that I think um, if you made it up, people wouldn't believe it. I think with um, with Maximilian, and I'm sure that readers have this this frustration is that I mean he's a, he's undoubtedly the nicest man you could have at the head of a, you know an evil imperial regime, <laughs> um, and there's so many moments of frustration where you just you know I, when I'm write, when I'm writing research I'll just screaming just just go just go home just just abdicate you know he's talked out of it twice uh, once by Carlotta and then once by his conservative allies and. Um, yeah, because you know, I mean, it's not, it's, you can, you can kind of, I mean, obviously we know what happens, but you can, even he should have, he should have seen what was coming. Um, and I think, but, you know, potentially he even did, um, certainly by the end, I think he wanted to, he had sort of resigned himself to a, a heroic death, an honorable death if he would have seen it. But just a man of um, endless contradiction and fascination. Um, and so, yeah, you could spend a lifetime researching him, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly people can start with your book, obviously, best start. Where can people get your book? Obviously in the UK, you know, uh, every bookshop outside the UK, where can people get it? So it's um, it, the US publisher is Basic Books. It's called The Last Emperor of Mexico. And the UK publisher is uh, Favor and Favor um, and um, available in all good bookstores and online. 
Um, and um, you can follow me on Twitter as well, um, at Edward Shawcross, if you want to uh, kept, be kept informed of all things um, um, Second Mexican Empire related. Um, and thank you so much for that wonderful um, um, review that you gave and for having me on the show. I've enjoyed it enormously. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been my absolute pleasure. And I just figured, and I'm curious, have you been talking about this with a natural Mexican? Because all the interviews I've heard, uh, you like talking with historians from America and, and obviously from Britain, but I'm like, no, no, we need to have this conversation for the benefit of honoring your own research. So thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And people need to read this book. Uh, reach out to you uh, uh, on, on Twitter and, and uh, follow you on your next adventures. Edward, thank you very much. I'll let you to go on with your day and back to your girls. And uh, it was lovely talking to you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced and presented by me, Rocio Carvajal, and my guest today was historian Dr. Edward Shawcross, author of the book The Last Emperor of Mexico. To hear more about this historical period and the previous events that led to the unfolding of this crazy episode, I will suggest you check out episode number 70 of season 5, which is about the history of Cinco de Mayo, which will give you more context about the national and international political landscape. Please check this episode's notes on your podcast app to find the link to listen these previous episode number 70 and also to follow Dr. Shawcross on Twitter. Get his book in the format of your choice, printed, digital or in audio format. The Last Emperor of Mexico is really a great introduction to a little explored passage of Mexico's history and the serendipitous involvement of the great European powers of the 19th century. Please bear with me for the following episode about the cultural history of Mexican cookbooks and the formation of a national identity. I promise it won't disappoint. Well, that's it for me today. Take care, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>